sit together in the dark. They speak. Their voices rise together. Their voices fall together. One voice speaks of this, the other of that. When they join, their words turn into flames, their voices into fire. This is Voice of the Fire, a podcast about storytelling. Welcome back. This is Voice of the Fire and we are talking about Moroccan storytelling today. Moroccan storytelling, especially traditional Moroccan storytelling, what you think about when you hear that the um, the classical storyteller from A Thousand and One Nights, the feeling of this Arabian storytelling, that is what drew me there initially. And for me, it was sort of a gateway into the world of storytelling. And if you look at Moroccan storytelling online, or if you talk to anybody about it, what you will find are articles speaking about the last storytellers, about storytelling as a dying art, and a disappearing thing that in the age of the internet, in the age of digital communication, uh, there's just a few people who are desperately trying to still keep it alive. And while this is a nice hook for a story, I don't find this to be true anymore. Certainly storytelling is not happening in the way it probably used to before people had the internet. I don't know if it's not as attractive to young people nowadays because I think that is fundamentally untrue. There are people of all ages all across, not just in Northern Africa, but all across Europe, America, uh, what have you, who are telling stories. And these are old people. These are people in their 80s who have picked it up after retirement. And these are younger performers who, who sometimes make a living of it and sometimes make do it for fun. And that happens everywhere. I think it's kept alive. It's just not as prevalent because internet and other sort of modern media are so goddamn prevalent. They are everywhere. And good storytellers were always far and few between. So, to sum that up, if you see articles speaking about the demise of storytelling, the decline of storytelling, the last few storytellers still alive, I think they are journalistic bullshit, very, very plainly spoken. They, this is a good way to sell you a story about it. This is a good way to set it up and, and to give word to a certain feeling of nostalgia and of loss. While storytelling, in fact, is experiencing some small kind of resurgence. But, this notwithstanding, there are quite a few good resources that you can find through that. There is one wonderful book called The Last Storytellers by a BBC journalist named Richard Hamilton, who has collected 
stories from the old storytellers who still tell about going around through cities, talking to their audiences on public places. And this is a wonderful resource for many of these old stories. And many of them, because they are now old, they talk about uh, a difficulty of finding young people to pass it on. There is a wonderful documentary by a German filmmaker whose name is Thomas Ladenburger, and the documentary is called Al-Halka, The Circle. And here I have to digress a little bit. Al-Halka, The Circle, The Circle means the circle that uh, a performer, a street performer in Morocco would gather around himself. Street performers in Morocco, they stand on uh, a public square in Marrakesh, this would be the Gem Elfna, uh, but there are squares like that in any town. And before they start a performance, they will gather a circle of people around them. Uh, ideally, they should not begin before this circle is complete, for various reasons, because you can uh, more easily control the energy of a crowd if you have a circle. And so many of the performers will uh, actively try to close that circle, even if there are not so many people around. And if you have a circle, people can come from all directions and you are automatically the center of attention because you are very much standing within a circle. So this is Al-Halka, this is the circle of, of street performers and also the circle of storytellers. And this tells the story of an aging storyteller who wants to pass on the art of storytelling to his son. So he goes around Morocco with his son telling stories. And for his son, at first, this is um, like a magical, marvelous thing. He goes around with his father, whom he idolizes, he thinks he will be initiated into this glorious, wonderful, magical uh, job, this magical profession, this different world. And as he goes around with his father, he realizes that his father really is a pariah. He's not so much celebrated as he is a poor street performer who works for a couple of dirham on the street and who has to struggle to gather together a crowd. And pretty much, pretty soon the glamour wears off. And he does not really want to continue in his father's footsteps. He does not really want to take up that profession. And it becomes a struggle between father and son. Abdurrahim al-Makari is the name of this storyteller. And he is still telling stories. I have seen him tell stories. But at that time, he was not very happy about his own choice maybe, or he was questioning his own choice of profession. Additionally, his son became sick later on. He had some kind of um, disease, and Abdurrahim could not afford, really, to, to go around and gather that, so he had to get a different job just to pay for his son's medical bills, and essentially had to give up storytelling. So, storytelling is a very, very risky profession, and to, to rely on yourself and to rely on uh, art to get you through life always is a very, very risky profession. But, so the, the, this film, Al-Halka, this ends with that kind of um, uncertainty whether this will continue and what, what will happen to him and if Abdurrahim can go on telling stories. 
I met him a few years after the events of that film, and what had happened in between was, uh, funnily enough, was like um, like something that would happen in a fairy tale. Uh, Richard Hamilton, the BBC journalist who who collected these books and who is a, a, a strong proponent of traditional storytelling in Morocco and is trying to help to keep it alive, wrote to the king of Morocco, Muhammad VI, and the king answered, and the king gave Abdurrahim a stipend. And he gave him a house. So he made sure that this man, who has done quite a lot to keep an essential Moroccan tradition alive and to help keep it alive, he gave him the means to live, gave him house and money. So Abdurrahim, who is now a proud and content man, who has achieved what he wanted to achieve in his life, is still continuing telling stories and is taking care of his family with it. And he is helping to create a new uh, generation of storytellers. There is a beautiful project going on in mostly in Marrakesh and it has already created its own offshoots. So the project is, is, is run by the Café Clock, which is a, a Moroccan-European cooperative café there is one in Fez and there is one in Marrakesh, and they host weekly hikayat circles. Hikayat is what the traditional storytelling is called. And here an old storyteller called Hajj is telling stories along with his disciples. He tells them in Darija, in Moroccan dialect, and his younger disciples, usually students at one of Marrakesh's universities, they translate those stories uh, and they tell their own stories in English to, for the for the English audience and they also go out into schools they also go out across the country they have performed in Chemelfna again after many years where, where people thought storytellers had completely disappeared from these public places and they continue to hold up the tradition there's another young man who used to do it and has now uh, started his own uh, individual form of story storytelling his name is Mehdi El Ghali and he does that, mixing the old with the new, because he's he's appearing at uh, TEDx, Marrakesh, things, and he's making his own uh, venues, creating his own venues to tell stories. And it is uh, amazingly well received. They have started traveling through Europe on scholarships and stipends, and they, well, they are trying to do that. It's not always easy to raise enough money, but... They have started to do that and, and to tell stories within, not just within their own hometowns, but all across Europe. So knowing that, that's why I think uh, articles that proclaim the death of storytelling in Morocco are very, very premature. And they're usually a little bit sensationalistic because this is the slant of story that sells quite well and that people look at and think, oh yeah, sure, I can understand that how that's going to happen of course storytelling would die you know the young generation is not they are just glued in front of screens and in my experience this is completely untrue because it doesn't matter which generation is it doesn't matter what what the the competition is people still will like direct storytelling if somebody sits there in front of them and tells them a story they will still listen it doesn't matter what alternatives they have 
this is still something different this is still something exciting and this if done correctly is still something magical so this is the state of moroccan storytelling and i do think it's in a pretty good state and it is in a pretty good shape or at least in a shape that makes hope for the future in this program i will tell a couple of traditional moroccan stories from some from the book by richard hamilton so a collection of various traditional moroccan tales and we also do have a special guest we have one of the young moroccan storytellers Mediel gali who is going to join us via skype and is going to tell one of his stories so for the next 45 minutes you can kick back you can relax and you can let yourself be taken into the world of moroccan storytelling all right so Mehdi, welcome to voice of the fire and welcome to our podcast i've already talked a little bit about moroccan storytelling and i've already introduced you gave the uh, listeners a rough idea of what you are about but here you are the man in person so i want to let <laughs> you say hello and just give us a rough idea who you are and what you're doing so um hello thank you for having me it's really really pleasure and um, who am I? I would say simply the storyteller. It does me justice. Um, um, I'm a guy or a human being who likes to transmit ideas, morals, messages, but in a form of a story, something that would last longer, something that has developed a sense of, of, of education into it and entertainment. I hope that I put it well, because in my head I think, what I am about is just a story in the making. It's still it's still developing itself. It doesn't have it has a start, but it doesn't have an end till I'm like dead or not there anymore in 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 the flesh. So that's I guess yeah yeah no it's a very <laughs> well, good yeah yeah the, like long story short I am like still in the making. <laughs> it sounds like you consider yourself uh, a story as such not just that you are somebody who is telling stories but that uh, yes. you yourself are very much part of the story or indeed the whole story yes and 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 in fact yeah that that's how we see myself because if i said that i'm the storyteller yes it does me it does me it, it does to me justice but it, at the end for every storyteller he has to have multiple stories but what is his own story and my own story is being the storyteller which started a long time ago and now it's still in the making with every breath with every day there is something new there was a character that i meet and now i'm talking to you yes. and now you've put your own character in the story which i will somehow tell in the next couple of years so it's <laughs> i see it this way it's like going on and on and on it never ends a story that constantly creates renews and reinvents itself yes totally do you see yourself as part of a tradition in storytelling, or uh, do you like to see yourself as separate from that? It's just your own. Um, uh, I don't think that I'm that I'm separate because I always uh, say this: like to get to know a culture or something, you need to know the history, which is simply stories, and 
and this heritage is the foundation. And you cannot start by saying, I am a storyteller without having a foundation. And I am a part of the heritage, which is the foundation. But what I do is that I build on it. I do my own tricks. I do my own uh, uh, background, my own knowledge, because I perform in Darija, which is Moroccan Arabic. Also that I perform in English. So, because I, I have a BA in, in English linguistics. So, do I move from that heritage? No. I simply add to it. I simply give it a new breath, a new format, because I am from, you could say, the younger generation or the future generation. And I somehow create a link between me as, as, as the youth of this generation and also the, the elders, which is the heritage. So I just build on it. And I'm a part of it. And it's a part of me because as a Moroccan, we grow up on, as I grew up on listening to stories. I grew up on, on talking too much, which Moroccan storytelling is about. It's more of oral tradition rather than a written tradition. And this talking, talking, it's, it's, it's a part of me. It's a part of my heritage. So even if I try to not talk, it's, it's impossible. You would always end up talking like now, which most of the people that I know, they say like I talk a lot. Sometimes I talk with nonsense, but in the end, they try to be the storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it doesn't make sense. Uh, no sense at all. No, but that's the way you want it. Um, I, um, I think that's, uh, that's a very good point that you bring up about oral tradition and oral storytelling, because where I come from, uh, from a European background, the written word is still the large thing. Yes. Uh, that if when I do storytelling, it's usually kind of a, people are surprised because they're not used to somebody being there and directly telling them a story, and it still has a very very strong effect. And something, uh, just one point that I would like to get across. Something that I was talking about earlier was that uh, people often speak about storytelling as a this sort of storytelling that we do as a dying tradition, and I think that is not true at all that yes. it is very much a continuing tradition that is going on and that is in no danger of dying out at all. I guess, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, we in Morocco, we have storytelling, but it's more of oral storytelling because we have an oral culture. We don't have a written culture like in Europe. And why is that? Because people, they didn't have, they weren't educated how to write, but they were, they had a knowledge about how to speak. And, and some of them just, would be sitting with his friends or his family and they would be talking in verses or or as poems as we as we in Morocco call them. And as you've mentioned, people say that storytelling is dying. Well in fact, storytelling is not just about a person reading from a book or standing in front of you and performing a story for you. It's what you are doing because storytelling is about the word. It's about transmitting something in verses or in proverbs or in just saying hello that's the story itself and we never stop doing that like now we are talking this is a story but is it a, a, like a, a traditional format of a story no that's why people think that storytelling is dying because it should be like once upon a time the king the castle the sword and they died or they lived happily ever after but they don't know that so now we don't have a king, but we might have a businesswoman, and the sword might be her car, and the castle might be her home, and it just these characters differ. So why people think that Stoughton is dying because they link it to an old tradition that should have certain old 
elements to it. But these old elements, when somebody takes them and develops them, they never die. And now, storytelling is never dies because we always keep on generating words, ideas, and moments. And storytelling is about creating moments, even from reading from a book or performing live or just talking on a podcast like that, <laughs> like this. Um, what do you think, because most people consider that very active storytelling to be something mm -hmm. slightly magical and something that has a certain ritual around it. Well, what you're yeah. saying means it is it is present with us every day and in every action that we take, even if we're just exchanging a greeting. Yes, um, I guess uh, I guess as a storytellers now we can agree on this thing is that we get inspired from from every encounter yes. we we have. Yes, and. Inspiration, as you've mentioned, like people think that stories are sort of magical. It has to have magical creatures. It has to have a uh, 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 little bit of witchcraft or this mystery going on. Well, in fact, I was just talking uh, with a with a friend that I, like two months ago about why Moroccan storytelling is, doesn't have only that, and I would say that storytelling is a little bit realistic. Mm -hmm. Because we we are telling stories of people that lived a long time ago. It might be true, as it might not be true. But what matters is that the moral or the message, it is something that we should consider as it's dealing with the issues of now. For example, don't discriminate people. If it was a story told back in the 12th century, it has moral that is about now. And... Uh, for example, as I said, in Moroccan storytelling, we don't have just magical creatures, we don't have witchcraft, but we have a realistic format of witchcraft or magical creatures to the point that you would say, wait a minute, is this story talking about me or is it talking about something magical that I just assumed to be magical? But on the other hand, storytellers, they were somehow uh, um, the people who enlightened other people about the issues that, go, that, that were going surround that were surrounding them and going around next to them, and they didn't need to come through and, and, and come forward like, wait a minute, it's that king who is killing those people, but it was more of like a magical creature having these powers and somehow making these other people live in, in hell, and they needed to have certain metaphors to somehow stay. Um, as we call them, like, um, uh, at least we call them, I'm looking for the adjective. Uh, it's to stay, like, pure and not having anything to do with whatever they say. Mm -hmm. It's like I'm just performing a story, but when you look at it, way more than the magical atmosphere to which you would understand that it's dealing with an issue. Mm -hmm. It is sending you a message. Yes. And I guess the magical uh, 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 environment of the story, it's just some sort of, like, a, a, a dress that, that the storytellers would put to the story so that yeah. it would distract others from really looking into it. Unless if you were educated and you were knowing what storytelling is about, you would definitely uh, uh, know what it's about. And that was the longest answer I've done so far. <laughs> it sounds like, again, I like the answer very much and I like where this is going because it sounds like that this um, this this kind of cloak of magic around the yes. stories allows the storyteller to say things that in other circumstances he or she could not say. 
Yes, totally. And and that was the case in fact in Morocco back in uh, uh, in 1912 when there was the the French uh, as they call it the French protectorate well it ended up in being colonization and stotters they had access to certain VIP events and they performed at those events and they might hear people in positions or the colonizers talking about what they will do next to in a city or what they will do in a different village. So what will they go is from performing in private to performing in public, for example, in, in a square or in a garden, and telling people stories like, hey, uh, sorry, just my phone, um, hey, be aware that in the next couple of days, this will happen, but how can you be prepared for it? Is doing this and this and this and this, but it was a message that was uh, sort of uh, designed for the people who were fighting against colonization. And storytellers, they were not there just to entertain, but they were but they were doing educational entertainment, and they were raising awareness, and and that's when you see that stories or storytelling never dies because it always was up to the situation that was going on and it's up to date. Yes, but they, it's but its format is older or as we call as we called it earlier the heritage. Its format is a little bit traditional. But it's always up to date, and um, if you were educated about it, you would understand it more, and you would oh wait a minute, is this story talking about this or that? So this is why this magical cloth. It's really important in transmitting messages that we as storytellers will not be able to transmit clearly or truthfully, yes. but we transmit them magically. Yes, like creating a secret language. In that sense, it yes. sounds almost like there are some sort of secret agent or a spy or somebody who is, um, again, as you say, who is not only telling the story, but who is creating the world, who is creating um, alternatives, who is creating ways out of problematic situations by Definitely. telling a story that flows directly into the story of other people's lives. Like there is no break between that. And that magic, yes. rather than... And separating it is somehow the the the, um, the fabric Slings. that holds all of it together. Yeah. Yes, totally. Uh, and also because the stories they were designed not for only adults; they were designed for kids, uh, 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 middle-aged people, and 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 others. So, as that magic, as you've said, linked, I would say, linked the generations mm -hmm. to the message, all of them. So it's it's really important to have that magical sense going on in the story. <laughs> exactly, that's the glue that holds everything together, or the fabric yes, that totally. wraps up everything all together. Yeah. I would like to change that, um, or or maybe maybe go on with that, but with a with a different focus. Because I recently mm -hmm. saw that you have been invited to Europe to to tell stories oh, and to yeah. workshops. <laughs> would you like to yeah. talk oh, about this a bit? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I I I was going to go to Europe back in. in in 2015, but it didn't happen due to certain elements of, of personal stories that went out there. But uh, I, eventually, I will tell you the story of how this happened. Please. I was performing with the Biennale, the Biennale of Marrakesh, and uh, a person, she is from Denmark, uh, uh, and I, uh, she, she's from Denmark, and she came to saw my performance. So we talked, we chat, and she left. She got my information. We added each other on Facebook and and exchanged emails, and that's how it went. But then uh, it was like six months or seven months, and I got this message: um, "Hi, hello. 
I'm a part of an organization called Rodram, and we would love if you would come and do an art residency with us. It's going to be a part of Images 16, which is a Biennale back in Denmark. And they were like, we are creating this Art Lab 3, which is uh, the third leg of Art Lab, because there was Art Lab 1, Art Lab 2, and Art Lab 3. And it was back... It would be like in in the mid November and it and this the very start of December, so around like three weeks or two weeks. Would you like to be interested in coming and doing a collaboration? Then I said yes, great, fun. I applied for the visa, then I got the visa, which was like yeah, and I was really happy about it. And um, I went there, and it's really interesting to see different culture because we I, I did like a collaboration with four artists, two were Danes, one was. Uh, uh, Egyptian. Uh, one was Egyptian. Two from 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 Denmark. They were Danes, and and um, one was contemporary art artist. The other one was a ceramic artist. The other the other uh, Egyptian. He was an architect, and I was the storyteller. So I was the person who deals most of the time with the talking. They deal most of the time with creating something and putting it out there, and they don't need to comment on it. So we worked for like two weeks. We did conversations we in order for us to set what the art lab three should be about so it was more of a workshop conversation at the end they performed the story so we built it we built the whole experience about um, a story or a poem from Gronvi he's a famous Danish poet and he wrote a poem for for Marie or Maria and he called it was really interesting that I based somehow a Moroccan story in that poem they created certain art, and in the end, everything came together. And that was one one of the most and 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 I would say brilliant things I've done so far is to be able to do an art residency in Denmark, where art is really being appreciated. And and I, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. Uh, I I know that art is not meant to be explained, but it's meant to be questioned. And that was the Art Lab 3's purpose: is for us to create something to get people to question and to see what this piece of art or what this piece of story is about. And in fact, that made me really question my, my, my abilities as a storyteller. Am I really doing the right thing with just performing? Or am I doing the right thing with performing, collaborating? And that's why for the last two years, I guess, I, I liked experimenting. I, I think... Sometimes I don't think about what the other person might, might offer me. So I said, like, yeah, I will do it. And eventually I will end up doing it from a different, really great purpose. And and yes, the art residency back in Denmark, it was really great. It opened my eyes to a lot of opportunities, to a lot of concepts. I get the chance to see different pieces of art because it wasn't just about talking. It was more about collaborating with other artists. I get the chance to visit some artists and and not storytellers, and, and, and to see a, a different type of storytelling that is way more not deals with words, but it deals with creating concepts. And um, that really inspired me a lot, to be honest, for my future secret projects. <laughs> it was really great. I think collaborations I, are I, definitely a way to go. With different between different um, um, different groups of artists or different kinds of art or or even people from other other uh, fields, because the more yes. the more if you get a lot of different perspectives, uh, it can only be richer. You 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 question what you're doing in different ways and you look at it in different indeed. ways. Yes, indeed. 
and you totally. you probably saw a totally different tradition of art like we have our, uh, yes. our european art yes. is uh insanely structured quite often i and... i visited um like even the place that i was at it was uh, it was called Olympics Hollum, and it was a manor that was established in, in 1321 and uh, they do art conversations they have pieces of art I visited Aarhus and, and I, I've seen a big, huge building that had multiple pieces of art into it. And I was really amazed by... That is a little bit different for me as a Moroccan because in Morocco, we don't have that huge, productive, active art scene going on uh, because it's a little bit exclusive. And I found it really interesting because I, 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 I saw something that I wasn't familiar with Yes, I was familiar in terms of seeing it on social media, on videos, and on documentaries, but to be really seeing it up like close to it and, and to be talking to artists who made that, it's really a huge exper ex experience. I'm sorry. It's a huge experience. And, and, and I would, because it was my first time flying out of Morocco, so that adds to it. Yes. And, yes. and, and to be able to fly out of your country and to do what you love. And that that's a great thing. I would be talking about it for the next twelve hours, but I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the talk for another day. But I think we'll see it in in future projects then, or future plans. Are there yeah, any? Um, e oh, let's spoil something. Okay, so um, uh, so in twenty sixteen, it was really fun. I had a ton of fun. I did a lot of projects. I did a lot of performances. Though, as you might see on, on social media, I guess I don't do a lot of performances because I think about quality, not the quantity of it. Because I cannot keep on performing whenever because that doesn't add to it. It just throw in stuff, whatever. But this year I have a, a project called Confluence. It's in fact a confluence between uh, uh, Scotland and Morocco. It's a collaboration. Uh, project uh, uh, with uh, two beautiful, brilliant artists. There was Laura, she's a professional artist photographer and a Celtic storyteller from Scotland. And in Morocco, there was me as the storyteller and then there was Hussein, who was a, a Moroccan photographer. So this confluence project, it's involving between or bringing two different types of storytelling. Storytelling is, as we call it, oral tradition and then photography. And these two would confluence and they would create pieces of art, images, talks, performances. So it's a long-term project. Now, uh, uh, I didn't get the chance to go to Scotland because of the visa then. And um, uh, for, the, for the first, for the, for the moment now. But uh, Hussein and, and the Moroccan photographer and, and the Scottish photographer, Laura, and, and, and they are back in Scotland now. They are talking about what is going to happen, and we keep on connecting. And what I love about Confluence, it's that it's um, a long-term project, so it doesn't have an end. It's like a story that I that I talked about earlier. It doesn't have an end, but we always will keep on updating people. So it's it's a great project that I'm really glad and excited about. And um, yeah, what do I have else? I'm planning a performance. I don't know when. Um, um, I need to do my very first public performance of 2017. I have a theme in mind. Um, in 2017 also, there was a huge thing, but it's late, 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 late year. That's all I can say about it. 
I'm asked to not say anything about it. Um, uh, it's a little bit of a top secret then. That's fine. Um, um, uh, yeah, I have something else coming up in March, but I, but I'm not really, I didn't, I didn't get it confirmed yet. It's going to be in a different city. And, uh, so I have a lot of stuff going on and everything is, is involving, everything is thriving. And, and that's what I like, but I'm more of, uh, I do a little bit of secrecy around things, but now I like for you, I, 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 I will tell, I told you this, like it's sort of headlines. So people be aware. I'm, I'm making a comeback in 2017. Breaking news. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, no, that's cool. I mean, I'm always interested in what people are doing. And I think especially if you have this really long-term project, and who knows yes. what it is going to evolve, evolve into. Yes. Sounds like uh, we, you we, leave it a lot of we, space to evolve. It's like what we told, even the four of us uh, were asked this question and we're like, we don't promise, but we promise you the best. So there will definitely be photography exhibitions from the, the photos that both of the artists took. There will be storytelling going on. There will be something new, so and that's what I like. It's experimenting this confluence and seeing what Scotland and Morocco can bring back, can bring together and show to the world that we live in a world where we are divided, but storytelling brings us all together. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the idea. It's mixing this and that and ending up having a beautiful piece of art that shows both countries and, and, and the confluence of it. Which leads me to something. I've wondered why, because there are quite a lot of storytelling conferences and meetings and big events uh, all across Europe, yeah. mostly in Northern Europe, yes. some yeah. in France. Um, but why, why is there nothing like that in, in Morocco, do you think? Well, uh, well, 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 that's a serious question. And I've been always... I'm, I'm just trying to get you to organize No, no, no. But it's really interesting that you asked it. I guess in Morocco we we don't have. Um, I will talk about makes the thing that I suffer from. It's whenever you tell people that you're doing storytelling, you don't, they might not take you seriously, especially in the Middle East or, or Morocco. Let's say Morocco, they take it as a cultural thing. But to be artistic, it needs from you to do. I don't know because they think when when they think about art, it has something to do with creating something and putting it out there. But they don't think that storytelling is is um, a little bit um, sort of art. Or, yeah. It's yeah. just a heritage or a cultural heritage. And why we don't have conferences? Uh, I guess because the art scene in Morocco, it's a little bit exclusive, as I said earlier. It's a little bit private. Most of the, um, uh, 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 the art places is a little bit... Uh, 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 French-themed. Uh, yes. So for me, for example, what I do, I do it in Derija or in English. So You're already a little bit of an outsider, you mean, in these an, an outsider, yes. So you need to have a little bit of your own zone, and it's hard in Morocco to create that. And, and we don't have these sort of conferences or gatherings because people, they don't have the knowledge about, they don't have knowledge of what art is about. At first, before we talk about any sort of art, we need to ha to have an artistic education, and that is what's lacking in in Morocco because we don't have an artistic education. So definitely, people wouldn't care about art. Even, for example, if if, if you got the chance to come to Morocco and see, uh, 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 we have a lot of we, there was the Biennale in Marrakesh, which is really great. There are multiple art events going on in Morocco, 
but always you would find ninety uh, percent uh, of them are foreigners who are going to it. Yes, yes, that's what I was about to ask just now. Who and, is it for? So who is it for? It? Even if Moroccans went to it, they they might not understand what it's about because I really appreciate all of the art scenes and whatever is going on. But for me, I guess the government should in include a little bit of art education. And for example, the Biennale this year, they last year they did like tours with, with kids and, and they did workshops with them. So they somehow, they were doing a great job at, at, at bringing that awareness. And um, so that's the problem because back in Europe, something that I found when I went back to Denmark, when I went back, when I went to Denmark, I wish I would go back. Um, when I went uh, to Denmark, I found that kids uh, that are like four or three, they can create something beautiful and, and they know a lot about art than a 21 years old Moroccan would know because they have an artistic education from a very such young age. Mm -hmm. And when you do a conference, he would definitely go and he would definitely experience his ideas. And, and, and that is, for me, for example, why I'm doing this is to raise awareness about something that is called art. Art might be anything, not just a set of, of, of glasses that are designed in a beautiful way or a set of books. It might be set of words. It might be set of set of, of phrases or or anything. It could be art. You just need to open your eyes and see it. And 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 hopefully, I might start my own conference here and 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 compete with Europe. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a goal you should actually aspire to because I don't. Well, the question is just again, who would you want to make it for? Yeah, yeah. Because you'd have to begin to invite people from Europe, storytellers yes. from. Um, that uh, and... I guess my idea of, of for example, the, the conference, even the performances that I do, I tend to 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 bring Moroccans and foreigners to communicate with one another. Mm -hmm. Because at the end, storytelling travels. Yes. And 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 that's that's my aim. It's not just about being there as a storyteller or the storyteller and performing stories, but it's about raising questions and bringing people to to be aware of that there was a cultural heritage in Morocco. Morocco is not only about tagines and couscous and and riding the camel, but it's more about knowing why, for example. Morocco is Morocco. It's because it has a cultural rich oral tradition that is storytelling, that it tells what Morocco was about a long time ago. And when I tell this to the younger generation that are Moroccans, you see that they really love it. And when I tell it also at the same time to foreigners, you said that they really like it. So we somehow create a new format for discussion, for knowing that Morocco is not only what you see in the news, it's not that the government is not formed yet, but it's more about a cultural... Uh, uh, impact that people had and they still have because these stories they just develop themselves to be a thread to to uh, uh, to what we lived and to what we will live and and so yeah I, I became yeah. too poetic with the answer but that, that's Not my, my you own perspective back to the first oh, point no. that you made the stories being the glue that that yes. ties different groups of society together and is ultimately what connects everything with each other. And I think that is a very, very good definition of what storytelling or what, what the whole magical aspect of that is. It simply, it simply is what happens in between. You know, there is an event, there's another event. Usually yes. you look at them as though they are completely separate. 
If you tell yeah. a story, you connect them. You draw a third event into it. You bring something forth. Yes. You put a character. You put another character, and then they all do this together, and so it becomes yes. something more, something like less call it, That sparkle, yeah, like that sparkle that you create when you hit two stones with one another. It's what matters. It's it's when you mix black and white and you get that gray. Yeah, that is the the charm of the story. It's that gray, not the black and white. Oh yeah. So the story that I will uh, uh, that I will tell you, it's uh, I guess you know Juha. Juha is a uh, is a really famous Middle Eastern character that started back in in, in Iraq, and um, there were different versions of him. There was the Iraqi version, then there was the Egyptian one, then there was the Moroccan, the Tunisian one. But if I were to compare him to something in Europe, he is this sort of the trickster. He likes to trick people. He is. He sorry, like, I, I can give you a comparison. There's a character called yes. Till Eulenspiegel from German uh, folklore. And yes. he's pretty much the trickster figure that Joha or Mullah Nasruddin or whatever name he bears is. Yes. Because when I was looking for, a, for something to compare him with, I found the trickster would be a little bit universal in terms of... The, exactly. The oh, that's true. So, um, uh, yeah. So this story is a little bit like... Uh, my very first stories that I really performed uh, live for people in, in English and it has like few characters but the message is really interesting and um, so um, once upon a time or Kenny Amakan or Hajish Kmajit or all of these introductions that people like to say um, there was um, uh, in a village or in a kingdom there were people living and but there was Juha. Juha is the trickster. And he was always trying, or not trying, he was always making trouble. He might steal somebody's cow. He might knock on somebody's door and, and run. He might throw a stone at someone. Or he might trick someone into buying a house from him. Then it ended up not being bought, actually. So one day the people lined up to the palace of the king. And they would go to the king. May God bless your highness. Juha did this thing to me. The second person might come. Oh, your highness, Juha took my cow. The second, the third person will go. Oh, Juha, like he harassed my wife, and and he made me throw a stone at this person. I, I, like your highness, do something. So the king was really frustrated, and he turned his head to the minister, and he was like, "Do I only have Juha in my kingdom? Is it really like, what is going on with him? What is going on with us? Why can't we judge him?" And then the minister would say, "Well, your highness, I have a trick," and. But I need from you something. Well, tell me. I would love to hear this trick if we're going to get rid of him and for good. Well, your highness, you will bring him to your palace. You would praise him. But then you would say, I have an offer for you. And if you succeeded that offer, you could do whatever you want in my kingdom and nobody would be able to judge you. But if you wouldn't, I would cut off your head and you would be an example for people. And the king said to the minister, well... What is this offer? Can you explain? But your highness, you need to promise me something. If Juha failed the offer, I need to marry your daughter. The king said, okay, you got that. Because the minister had already planned the scheme. Because he wanted to marry the king's daughter and this was the, the, the chance for it. So he told the minister, he told the king, I'm sorry. Well, your highness, the offer is three questions. And if Juha was able to answer them, he can do whatever. And if he was not, he would cut off his head. 
So tell me what are these three questions? Well, Your Highness, the first question is how many stars are there in the sky? Okay. The second question is how many hairs you have in your beard? Right? The third question is where does the center of the universe exist? And the king took a couple of seconds and he said, well, I cannot answer them. Neither wizards or scientists or people that are educated and have the knowledge of the world cannot really answer these questions. And in fact, we might cut off Shah's head and he would never be able to answer them. And the minister smiled and he said, well, that's the thing, your highness. This is why we will get him and soon and fast. So they went to Shah's house. They knocked on the door. The guard, he opened for the guards. They said, Jaha, the king wants to see you. Then he said, well, I didn't do anything. He was like, no, no, no. The king, he said, wants to see you. And now. So he wore something quick and he went to the king. Hello, your highness. My God bless your highness. Are you asked for me? I hope that it's not something serious. I didn't do anything. And the king said, I didn't even ask you if you did something. But I really appreciate you and being exist like being living in my own kingdom. You are a really nice human being, and you do a lot to my community that drives me crazy. And I cannot bear what you do. I definitely had enough of what you do. So I have an offer for you. And if you were able to succeed in it, you can do whatever. And you have my word. But if not, I would cut off your head. Then Shah would say, are you serious, your highness? I don't know. I'm uh, like, listen. So the offer goes as, I have three questions for you. If you were able to answer them, you could do whatever. And if not, your head would be mine. Are you serious, your highness? Yes. Listen. The first question is how many stars are there in the sky? The second question is how many hairs I have in my beard? The third question is how many, uh, <laughs> how many, is where does the center of the universe exist? Um, you want me to answer them right now, your highness? Jaha said, no, 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 no. I know you wouldn't answer them right now, you fool. You take three days. And on the fourth day, you come to my, you come to my palace. And then we will see what we will do. So Jaha left. And he was shocked by how serious the king was with him. And that he, like, they literally want to kill him. So Juha was not just the type of the trickster that would create trouble, but he was really smart at always getting away with trouble. So the first day, he took a couple of hours to think, the second day, the third day, and on the fourth day, he rode his camel, he rode his donkey, because he was always famous for having a donkey with him. So he rode the donkey to... The king's palace. The guards stopped him. Where are you going to go, Jaha? I'm going to see the king. So they went to the king. Your highness, Jaha is here. Let him in. But he wants to see you on his donkey. What? Tell him no. Then the minister stopped the king. And he said, Sorry. <clears throat> then he said, Well, your highness, we will kill him. Let it be his final wish to get in here on his donkey. Okay, let him in. So he got into the king's palace. He saluted the king on the donkey. The king goes really like, Are you friending me in my palace? No, 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 your highness. I just have one condition. Is that you bring your hairdresser here to the
to this room and then I will get off of my donkey. Okay, call for the hairdresser. The hairdresser came. Zuha got off the donkey and he started walking around the king and around the room like he was in control with one hand behind his back and he told the king, waving with the other hand, well, you asked me three questions. Uh, the first one was about how many stars are there in the sky. The second was about how many hairs you have in your beard. And the third is what does the center of the universe exist? And yes, your highness, these are the hardest questions I ever get from anyone. But, you know, not every question has an answer, but everything can be explained. So, tell your hairdresser to shave my donkey's back, because the numbers of hairs on my donkey's back is the same exact number of stars in the sky. So you take each hair, and you count it, and you count the stars. You and the minister, and everybody that was complaining about me, they were troubled in your kingdom. And the second question, in fact, was about how many hairs you have in your beard. Well, yes. Don't feel offended, your highness. I don't want you to. But you tell the hairdresser to cut off my donkey's tail. And the same exact hairs of mine on the donkey's tail is the same exact number of hairs in your beard. And the king got really mad. Tell me what is the third, what is the third answer, you genius? Well, that was really hard. I thought that not even the scientists people could know what the answer would be. But... I love my donkey. She's the, she's she's in, she's in my heart. She's the beauty of my life, and she definitely has to be the center of the universe. Go bring your people, and you count, and you measure stuff, and you see. So the king was like, "I have to shave the donkey's back, cut off its tail, and it's the center of the universe. How come?" He answered the questions, and then he told him, "Go away, Jha, go away." Then Jha kept on moving around and he told the king um you gave me your word that if I answered I can do whatever I want but your word is not enough for me I need a piece of paper would you sign it and saying that nobody can judge me from now on so he gave him the piece of paper the king signed it mm -hmm. and then the king uh, the minister the, 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 the said to the king and the minister well you know at first, I was just doing some trouble to teach people lessons and to show them that the world is not a beautiful place. It has to be some trouble going on. But now, I would simply make you live in hell, happily ever after, and you have to deal with it. And he left. Then the king turned his head to the minister and he said, Do you have any other suggestions of offers that I can do? Yes, your highness, I can. No. You would go to jail, because if you... I underestimated that, that person. I really thought that he would not answer them, but he answered the questions. Go to jail. So the king sent the minister to jail. And from that day on, he learned his lesson, which is in fact, the, the lesson of the story is, if you are in a position where you need to do your job, you don't need to underestimate people. You don't give them time. You don't ask them questions to answer. You just... Do it at the same exact moment because you would never get the chance to do it all over again. And the king underestimated Jaha's ability to answer the questions. And he was smart, and he did. And because of the king's understatement 
understatement the king understatement he definitely going to bear to live in hell happily ever after without doing anything about it and that's how they lived in hell happily ever after with with nothing to do with it about it and and yeah i guess i somehow wrapped up the story <laughs> very and, very and very nice it's, there's still some unpolished elements but this is and, um, yeah this is one of the most sinister Joha stories I have ever heard. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. But it's it, one of it the, fits the, in. the uh, yes. and it's a very old story, in fact, uh, and it's oral. It's not even written in any book, and um, uh, and that's what I love about I love about it is this that it shows that Jaha is really mistaken for being just a trickster, but he also teaches people lessons, and he doesn't care about who they are. He doesn't care about what position they are in, and he always finds his way to to get away of trouble with leaving a message behind. Yes, and but uh, he's also a true trickster in this in this one. Yes, he is, and he has all the right to to make life a living hell for people now. Definitely, <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's, um, it's one of the stories that I love. It's the first story that I performed. And um, I, I love I love performing because it's it's so simple. It has three characters, three questions. That somehow you could see this balance into it, yeah. And and a great message. And and, and you, we don't need to underestimate people based on their gender, based on their education, based on their background, based on their culture. You just need to to treat everybody the same and 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 be true about it and and to not make to not make your life. To not make your life a living hell, because people would definitely do so if you ruined theirs. Mm, certainly, so it's it does what you said before. It balances the the, the really sinister with a, a very light sort of humor, and it kind yes. of swings between those two. There's Joha with his donkey, who's a bit yes. of a ridiculous figure, but in the end, he's almost like <laughs> a, a devil Some kind of universe. creature. Yes, but so, but he's he, that, that's what what, what I guess. In the Middle East, they love about Jaha is he is really uh, uh, lovely, but also smart, evil human being. Yeah, yeah. He, can, he can he can make you love being evil, and 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 he does the best, and and the way he somehow the best he does the best at it because he forms his tricks into being a, a really comic situations, and um, and it's I love performing this story live and moving around and and giving Jaha that, that kind of in control flair as the king is sitting on his chair and and it's really a performative story rather than just an oral one to be told yeah but i think we can all picture it when we hear you tell it and I see hope it so. of I course hope. we can definitely see it in our heads and also see you the definitely performance that's really a bad day to tell you a story but i tried thank, my best thank you very much maybe <laughs> that was a wonderful Pleasure story to hear time. And, and, and a very good uh, example of your storytelling skills. And also, hopefully, this will make people who listen interested in seeing you perform somewhere. Definitely. Whether I this is so. somewhere in Denmark again, or in Scotland, or indeed in Marrakesh, Esawira. Oh, yes. In, oh, God. Perform. I'm going to Esawira tomorrow. Oh, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much to Mehdi for his interview and for this story that he was telling us and giving us a little glimpse, a little window into the world of storytelling in general and Moroccan storytelling uh, 
in particular. I would like to finish this episode of Voice of the Fire with another Moroccan story. This is a story told by Abderrahim El Makari, the man that I have mentioned in the introduction, and it is called The King and His Prime Minister. There was once a king who had a prime minister who was called It's Good. They gave him this name because no matter what the king said, the minister always remarked, Wow, it's good! One day the prime minister met the king in the garden of his great palace, where he found him idly chopping a small strip of bamboo with his dagger. The dagger slipped on the bamboo and the monarch sliced off a bit of his finger. It's good, the prime minister exclaimed. The sovereign wrapped the bandage around his finger, but he did not think it was good at all. In fact, he was so angry that he ordered the politician to be locked up in prison and left there to rot. Some days later the king wanted to get away from all his problems and the endless intrigues in the palace. He decided to make a voyage by boat, and so he boarded the ship and he sailed away. After many days on the ocean waves, the vessel came to an island. When the king arrived at the island, he thought it was a beautiful place and he disembarked alone. But no sooner had he left the boat than he met some natives. They warned the king that on this island strangers are always captured and sacrificed at dawn the next day. Before the king even had time to think about this, he saw a group of fierce-looking soldiers running towards him. They chased the king, caught him, and brought him to the high priest. Now, it was the tradition on the island that before they killed anyone, the high priest would check if he would make a good sacrifice. So the soldiers took off the king's clothes to see whether anything was missing because you cannot sacrifice a body which is not complete. When they brought the naked king to him, the high priest noticed that a part of his finger had been chopped off. When the priest saw that the finger had been disfigured in this way, he said, Stop! This man cannot be sacrificed. Give him his horse, his weapon, and let him go. So the king hurriedly went back to his ship and left the island. As he was sailing back, he began to think about the prime minister who was still in jail and remembered what he had said. The king thought to himself, Oh, he was right after all. When he said, It's good that I cut my finger, he knew what he was talking about. If I had not cut it, I would have been sacrificed. When the king came home, he freed the prime minister and told him all about his ordeal on the island. 
and he asked the Prime Minister, how was your time in jail? The Prime Minister said, why, it was good. The King was amazed and asked, well, how can it be good? Well, thank God you put me in prison, replied the Prime Minister. If you'd taken me to the island with you, you would have escaped, but I would have been sacrificed. Thank you for listening to Voice of the Fire. My name is Sebastian Buchner. I am a storyteller. You can find the podcast Voice of the Fire on iTunes and SoundCloud. So go there and check it out. Leave us likes, leave us comments, because this podcast, like any other, lives from community interaction, lives from feedback, and lives from the conversation that it creates. So again, thank you very much for listening. Tune in next time when I will be talking to two Indian filmmakers about their project Uramili. <laughs>